Hello there, and welcome to another episode of Down to Sleep, the podcast of softly spoken stories. Tonight I will be continuing The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald for you. Thank you so much for joining me. If you missed the first part of this reading, it is back at episode number six. Scroll back on Spotify or whatever app you are listening to on, and you'll find it there. And then you can come back and join us. But otherwise, we'll begin in just a second. If you would like to join the podcast on Patreon, you'll get episodes that are twice as long, as well as a bonus episode every single week for a few bucks a month, and it helps keep the podcast going. So join us at patreon.com slash down to sleep. And if you're interested in where else you can listen to this podcast, you can get it on Spotify and all of the apps, and you can get all of the information at downtosleeppodcast.com. Let's take a nice deep breath, get ourselves really comfortable, settle on down for the great Gatsby. Chapter 3 There was music from my neighbor's house through the summer nights. In his blue gardens, men and girls came and went like moths among the whisperings in the champagne and the stars. At high tide in the afternoon, I watched his guests diving from the tower of his raft, or taking the sun on the hot sand of his beach while his two motorboats slit the waters of the sound, drawing aquaplanes over cataracts of foam. On weekends, his Rolls Royce became an omnibus, bearing parties to and from the city between nine in the morning and long past midnight, while his station wagon scampered like a brisk yellow bug to meet all trains. And on Mondays, eight servants, including an extra gardener, toiled all day with mops and scrubbing brushes and hammers and garden shears repairing the ravages of the night before. Every Friday, five crates of oranges and lemons arrived from New York. Every Monday, these same oranges and lemons left his back door in a pyramid of pulpless halves. There was a machine in the kitchen which could extract the juice of 200 oranges in half an hour if a little button was pressed 200 times by a butler's thumb. At least once a fortnight, a corps of caterers came down with several hundred feet of canvas and enough colored lights to make a Christmas tree of Gatsby's enormous garden. On buffet tables, garnished with glistening hors d'oeuvres, spiced baked hams crowded against salads of harlequin designs and pastry pigs and turkeys bewitched to a dark gold. In the main hall, a bar with a real brass rail was set up, and stocked with gins and liquors and with cordials so long forgotten that most of his female guests were too young to know one from another. By seven o'clock the orchestra has arrived. No thin five-piece affair, but a whole pitfall of oboes and trombones, saxophones, viols and cornets and piccolos, low and high drums... The last swimmers have come in from the beach now, and are dressing upstairs. The cars from New York are parked five deep in the drive, and already the halls and salons and verandas are gaudy with primary colors, hair bobbed in strange ways and shawls beyond the dreams of Castile. The bar is in full swing, and floating rounds of cocktails permeate the garden outside until the air is alive with chatter and laughter and casual innuendo, Introductions forgotten on the spot and enthusiastic meetings between women who never knew each other's names. The lights grow brighter as the earth lurches away from the sun and now the orchestra is playing yellow cocktail music and the opera of voice pitches a key higher. Laughter is easier minute by minute spilled with prodigality tipped out at a cheerful word. 
The groups change more swiftly, swell with new arrivals, dissolve and form in the same breath. Already there are wanderers, confident girls who weave here and there among the stouter and more stable, become for a sharp, joyous moment from the centre of the group, and then, excited with triumph, glide on through the sea change of faces and voices and colour under the constantly changing light. Suddenly, one of these gypsies in a trembling opal seizes a cocktail out of the air, dumps it down for courage, and, moving her hands like Frisco, dances out alone on a canvas platform. A momentary hush. The orchestra leader varies his rhythm obligingly for her, and there is a burst of chatter as the erroneous news goes around that she is Gilda Gray's understudy from the Follies. The party has begun. I believe that on the first night I went to Gatsby's house, I was one of the few guests who had actually been invited. People were not invited. They went there. They got into automobiles which bore them out to Long Island, and somehow they ended up at Gatsby's door. Once there, they were introduced by somebody who knew Gatsby, and after that they conducted themselves according to the rules of behavior associated with an amusement park. Sometimes they came and went without having met Gatsby at all came for the party with a simplicity of heart that was its own ticket of admission. I had been actually invited. A chauffeur in a uniform of robin's egg blue crossed my lawn early that Saturday morning with a surprisingly formal note from his employer. The honour would be entirely Gatsby's, it said, if I would attend his little party that night. He had seen me several times and had intended to call on me long before but a peculiar combination of circumstances had prevented it. Signed, J. Gatsby, in a majestic hand. Dressed up in white flannels, I went over to his lawn a little after seven, and wandered around rather ill at ease among swirls and eddies of people I didn't know, though here and there there was a face I had noticed on the commuting train. I was immediately struck by the number of young Englishmen dotted about, all well-dressed, all looking a little hungry, and all talking in low, earnest voices to solid and prosperous Americans. I was sure that they were selling something. Bonds, or insurance, or automobiles. They were at least agonizingly aware of the easy money in the vicinity, and convinced that it was theirs for a few words in the right key. As soon as I arrived, I made an attempt to find my host but the two or three people of whom I asked his whereabouts stared at me in such an amazed way, and denied so vehemently any knowledge of his movements that I slunk off in the direction of the cocktail table, the only place in the garden where a single man could linger without looking purposeless and alone. I was on my way to get roaring drunk from sheer embarrassment when Jordan Baker came out of the house and stood at the head of the marble steps leaning a little backward and looking with contemptuous interest down into the garden. Welcome or not, I found it necessary to attach myself to someone before I should begin to address cordial remarks to the passerby. Hello, I roared, advancing towards her. My voice seemed unnaturally loud across the garden. I thought you might be here, she responded absently as I came up. I remembered you lived next door to... She held my hand impersonally, as a promise that she'd take care of me in a minute and gave ear to two girls in twin yellow dresses who stopped at the foot of the steps. Hello, they cried together. Sorry you didn't win. That was for the golf tournament. She had lost in the finals the week before. You don't know who we are, said one of the girls in yellow, but we met you here about a month ago. You've dyed your hair since then, remarked Jordan, 
and I started, but the girls had moved casually on, and her remark was addressed to the premature moon, produced like the supper, no doubt, out of a caterer's basket. With Jordan's slender golden arm resting in mine, we descended the steps and sauntered about the garden. A tray of cocktails floated at us through the twilight, and we sat down at a table, with the two girls in yellow and three men, each one introduced to us as Mr. Mumble. Do you come to these parties often? inquired Jordan of the girl besides her. The last one was the one I met you at, answered the girl in an alert, confident voice. She turned to her companion. Wasn't it for you, Lucille? It was for Lucille, too. I like to come, Lucille said. I never care what I do, so I always have a good time. When I was here last, I tore my gown on a chair, and he asked me my name and address. Inside of a week, I got a package from Corrier's with a new evening gown in it. Did you keep it? asked Jordan. Sure I did. I was going to wear it tonight, but it was too big in the bust and had to be altered. It was gas blue with lavender beads. Two hundred and sixty-five dollars. There's something funny about a fellow that'll do a thing like that, said the other girl eagerly. He doesn't want any trouble with anybody. Who doesn't? I inquired. Gatsby, somebody told me. The two girls and Jordan leaned together confidently. Somebody told me that they thought he killed a man once. A thrill passed over all of us. The three Mr. Mumbles bent forward and listened, eagerly. I don't think it's so much that, argued Lucille skeptically. It's more that he was a German spy during the war. One of the men nodded in confirmation. I heard that from a man who knew all about him. Grew up with him in Germany, he assured us positively. Oh no, said the first girl. It couldn't be that, because he was in the American army during the war. As our credulity switched back to her, she leaned forward with enthusiasm. You look at him sometime when he thinks nobody's looking at him. I'll bet he killed a man. She narrowed her eyes and shivered. Lucille shivered. We all turned and looked around for Gatsby. It was testimony to the romantic speculation he inspired that there were whispers about him from those who had found little that it was necessary to whisper about in this world. The first supper. There would be another after midnight was now being served, and Jordan invited me to join her own party, who was spread around a table on the other side of the garden. There were three married couples and Jordan's escort, a persistent undergraduate given to violent innuendo, and obviously under the impression that sooner or later, Jordan was going to yield him up her person to a greater or lesser degree. Instead of rambling, this party had preserved a dignified homogeneity and assumed to itself the function of representing the staid nobility of the countryside, East Egg condescending to West Egg and carefully on guard against its spectroscopic gaiety. Let's get out, whispered Jordan after a somehow wasteful and inappropriate half hour. This is much too polite for me. We got up and she explained that we were going to find the host. I had never met him, she said, and it was making me uneasy. The undergraduate nodded in a cynical, melancholy way. The bar where we glanced first was crowded, but Gatsby was not there. She couldn't find him from the top of the steps, and he wasn't on the veranda. On a chance, we tried an important-looking door, and walked into a high, gothic library, panelled with carved English oak, and probably transported complete from some ruin overseas. A stout middle-aged man with enormous owl-eyed spectacles was sitting somewhat drunk on the edge of a great table, staring with unsteady concentration at the shelves of books. As we entered, he wheeled excitedly around and examined Jordan from head to foot. 
What do you think? He demanded impetuously. About what? He waved his hand towards the bookshelves. About that. As a matter of fact, you needn't bother to ascertain. I ascertained. They're real. The books? He nodded. Absolutely real. Have pages and everything. I thought they'd be nice, durable cardboard. Matter of fact, they're absolutely real. Pages and... Here, let me show you. Taking our skepticism for granted, he rushed to the bookcases and returned with volume one of the Stoddard Lectures. See? He cried triumphantly. It's a bona fide piece of printed matter. It fooled me. This fella's a regular Belasco. It's a triumph. What thoroughness, what realism. Knew when to stop, too. Didn't cut the pages. But what do you want? What do you expect? He snatched the book from me and replaced it hastily on its shelf, muttering that if one brick was removed, the whole library was liable to collapse. Who brought you? he demanded. Did you just come? I was brought. Most people were brought. Jordan looked at him alertly, cheerfully, without answering. I was brought by a woman named Roosevelt, he continued. Mrs. Claude Roosevelt, do you know her? I met her somewhere last night. I've been drunk for about a week now, and I thought it might sober me up to sit in a library. Has it? A little bit, I think. I can't tell yet. I've only been here an hour. Did I tell you about the books? They're real, they're... You told us. We shook hands with him gravely and went back outdoors. There was dancing now on the canvas in the garden. Old men pushing young girls backward in eternal graceless circles. Superior couples holding each other tortuously, fashionably, keeping in the corners and a great number of single girls dancing individually or relieving the orchestra for a moment of the burden of the banjo or the traps. By midnight, the hilarity had increased. A celebrated tenor had sung in Italian and a notorious contralto had sung in jazz, and between the numbers, people were doing stunts all over the garden, while happy, vacuous bursts of laughter rose toward the summer sky. A pair of stage twins who turned out to be the girls in yellow did a baby act in costume. Champagne was served in glasses bigger than finger bowls. Moon had risen higher and floating and the sound was a triangle of silver scales, trembling a little to the stiff, tinny drip of the banjos on the lawn. I was still with Jordan Baker. We were sitting at a table with a man of about my age and a rowdy little girl who gave way upon the slightest provocation to uncontrollable laughter. I was enjoying myself now. I had taken two finger bowls of champagne and the scene had changed before my eyes into something significant, elemental, and profound. At a lull in the entertainment, the man looked at me and smiled. "'Your face is familiar,' he said politely. "'Weren't you in the First Division during the war?' Why, yes, I was in the 28th Infantry. I was in the 16th until June 1918. I knew I'd seen you somewhere before. We talked for a moment about some wet, grey little village in France. Evidently, he lived in this vicinity, for he told me that he had just bought a hydroplane and was going to try it out in the morning. Want to go with me, old sport? Just near the shore along the Sound. What time? Any time that suits you best. It was on the tip of my tongue to ask his name when Jordan looked around and smiled. Having a gay time now? she inquired. Much better. I turned again to my new acquaintance. This is an unusual party for me. 
I haven't even seen the host. I live over there. I waved my hand at the invisible hedge in the distance, and this man Gatsby sent his chauffeur with an invitation. For a moment he looked at me, as if he failed to understand. I'm Gatsby, he said suddenly. What? I exclaimed. Oh, I beg your pardon. I thought you knew old sport. I'm afraid I'm not a very good host. He smiled understandingly, much more than understandingly. It was one of those rare smiles, with a quality of eternal reassurance in it, that you may come across four or five times in life. It faced, or seemed to face, the whole eternal world in an instant, and then concentrated on you, with an irresistible prejudice in your favor. It understood you, just so far as you wanted to be understood, believed in you, as you would like to believe in yourself, and assured you that it had precisely the impression of you that at your best you hoped to convey. Precisely at that point it vanished, and I was looking at an elegant young roughneck, a year or two over thirty whose elaborate formality of speech just missed being absurd. Some time before he introduced himself, I'd got a strong impression that he was picking his words with care. Almost at the moment when Mr. Gatsby identified himself, a butler hurried towards him with the information that Chicago was calling him on the wire. He excused himself with a small bow that included each of us in turn. If you want anything, just ask for it, old sport, he urged me. Excuse me, I'll rejoin you later. When he was gone, I turned immediately to Jordan, constrained to assure her of my surprise. I had expected that Mr. Gatsby would be a florid and corpulent person in his middle years. And that is where we will close the book on this episode of Down to Sleep. If you would like to hear the extended reading, then join me at patreon.com slash down to sleep, where for a few dollars the episodes are twice as long and you get a bonus episode every single week where we continue readings like Alice in Wonderland, The Wizard of Oz, and more. Thank you for joining me. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review on whatever app you were listening on, and I will see you next week for another episode of Down to Sleep. Until next time, good night.